Welcome to Trinity University's Learning Together podcast series. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, your host. If you know me, then you know that I love movies, especially classic Hollywood. I work at the public radio station in San Antonio, where I program a summer film series called Cinema Tuesdays. That's where I first met Patrick Keating, a professor in the communication department at Trinity. Keating's specialty is cinematography, the way movies are framed and photographed, the way the camera moves, who's in the picture, and who's out. After visiting with Patrick Keating casually at the theater on a number of occasions, I was thrilled to spend some more time with him in the studio. Although we can't share any images with you over your earphones, I think you'll still get the picture as you listen to our conversation about classic Hollywood cinematography and the studio system. Welcome, Dr. Keating, to the Trinity University Learning Together podcast. Thanks for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. Thanks for having me. So you and I both have a shared common interest in movies and specifically in old movies. My history at Texas Public Radio is that I curate our summer film series, Cinema Tuesdays, where we show great old movies on the big screen, movies that I think really deserve to be shown on a big screen. And it's a fundraiser for the station, and it's been very successful for many years. I'm, I love doing it. And, and I love going to it. <laughs> I've thank been, you. I've been there many times, and I've even won some prizes. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, and your history, of course, here in the Department of Communication and personally is studying old film, and uh, specifically the cinematography of old movies. You have a, an MFA also in uh, production, which maybe we can get into a little bit later on as well. First, I wanted to start off by asking you, really, where did your love of specifically old movies come from? Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles, and so it, maybe it was part of the Los Angeles film culture, but I liked old movies ever since I was young. I remember every Sunday we would get the LA Times and we would get their TV guide. And when I was a young teenager, I would go through the TV guide and all the movies had, they had a check system, one check, two check, three checks, four checks. And I would look for all the movies that were playing that week on TV that had four checks, which meant that it was a classic. Uh, and then we had, uh, you know, this is the 1980s, so we had a, a VHS recorder and I would record all of the four check movies and I would watch them over and over again. Uh, I, I, I realize now just how patient my sisters were with me. Uh, older sisters? Or older sisters, two <laughs> older sisters. Uh, and every time they would come downstairs, I would be watching The Third Man or uh, Bridge on the River Kwai or uh, Lawrence of Arabia uh, or The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, I was just always watching them. And, you know, I, I, I later found out, you know, that, you know, the music to the third man drove them crazy. Uh, but uh, but they, were, they, they were very patient, and my parents were uh, very patient and supportive. I would keep an eye out for old films that would screen around L.A., like at the L.A. County Museum of Art. And I remember my parents would, would drive me, uh, and this was a good half-hour, 45-minute drive, just so I could see Sunrise on the big screen. Uh, and so I still remember when I was when I was in my teens and I saw Sunrise for the first time. Yeah, so I've always liked movies, uh, and especially I've always liked classic Hollywood movies. When I was in college, 
I I watched pretty wide range of movies, and I, I think I went through phases. You know, I had a phase where I was really into Hungarian movies. Mm-hmm. I had a phase when I was really into Hong Kong action movies, but I just came back to Hollywood uh, uh, movies as as the one that I really wanted to study. But was there a point where you realized as you were watching these movies and these old movies that somebody made this mm-hmm. and somebody had a decision to do it in this way, to put the camera here, to have mm-hmm. the actor perform in this way? When, when did that moment come for you? Yeah, that, I do think while I was in my teens, I was noticing that. You know, I mentioned The Third Man, and it's it's sort of hard to miss what's going on with the cinematography in that film. As you know, that film, half of the shots are photographed with a canted angle. And so, Explain a canted angle for those who don't know. Yeah, so the camera is uh, tilted right. slightly so that you don't get any true verticals in the composition. Everything is a little bit oblique. And you see that in in a lot of films where when a character has, has a moment of crisis, they might shift to a canted angle. Uh, and the third man is unusual in that almost the whole movie, <laughs> just every scene, seems to be using that technique. So certainly that uh, aspect of cinematography stuck out. I remember in, in Sunrise, there's a shot where we think that the, the wife may have drowned in, in the lake. And then we cut to a shot, and it's, it's an almost completely black screen. And then uh, she's, she's holding on to some rushes, I think they're called. And she just floats across the screen. And then it becomes a black screen again. I remember that just stuck in my mind, uh, that it could go just black, and then how slow she floats across the screen. That made me very aware of uh, pacing and composition. So when did you, as you developed this appreciation for the craft of the film, you know, when did you set out and say to myself, you know what, I'm going to really dig in and study these mm-hmm. things? When I went to undergrad, I wanted to be a film studies major, so I knew that going in. So day one of my undergrad education, I was in intro to film, uh, and I took the theory intensive section because they said that was what the film studies major should do. Uh, At the time, I was most interested in, in making films myself. Uh, so as an undergrad, I, I just made short movies. Most were pretty bad. One, one was actually a, a gangster movie, which uh, <laughs> uh, wasn't, wasn't as bad as it sounds. But uh, uh, yeah, I did a gangster movie, and then I did a movie about a, you know, a poet you know, who was having trouble writing a poem. You know, I mean, I think every young writer... Right, goes through, writes a screenplay that's about a writer who's having trouble writing something. So that was mine. Is your Fellini moment? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, and then I went to um, USC for film school, and there I was, I was focusing on uh, uh, film production. Uh, so I was interested in, in directing and writing, but also I found that I was particularly interested in cinematography. Yeah. However, while I was there, I also was thinking about um, the study side. Uh, we were required to take some courses in film history. For many of my uh, colleagues uh, in the USC film school, those were like the chore classes, which is kind of amazing that the 
you know, the film classes. You're going to make you watch old movies? My yeah. gosh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I really enjoyed those classes. I took an Italian cinema class. I sat in on a film noir class. I took a, an American studio system, a Hollywood studio system class. And that, that probably was the class that I think planted the seed of, of going back and getting a Ph.D., because that class, we uh, everyone was assigned a movie that was made by Warner Brothers, and USC has the Warner Brothers archives. So each one of us had to go into the archives and say, I'm working on this movie, uh, what do you have? And they would give you boxes of materials, so uh, all of the different screenplays, all of the different memos that Hal Wallace or whoever the producer was wrote, usually complaining about how the movie was going. You know, there could be drawings, there could be contracts, there could be budgets and schedules. And I just thought being in the archives, looking at these old documents was fascinating. What was your Warner movie that you chose? I was assigned The Fountainhead, <laughs> uh, which is the a very bizarre 1949 adaptation of the Ayn Rand novel um, that has a pretty famous scene of uh, Gary Cooper working in uh, a sort of rock quarry. Uh, and he has this, you know, tool that he's using to drill rock. And then Patricia Neal comes up and sees him. And she's just obsessed with him because he, he looks so amazing, uh, you know, drilling the rock. It's, it's, a, it, it's a great over-the-top <laughs> cheesy um uh but still very enjoyable scene cool um so you're you mentioned film noir a moment ago and that's really i think where your love lies there's film noir has a a certain visual look to it there's uh certain elements of plot and style with uh characters that seem to hit beats in uh Mm -hmm. film noirs as well the femme fatale character the you know, hero and the tragedy that befalls upon them in in film noir. But specifically, you know, even though it's very hard as we're talking here, describe to me what you like visually about these films and what it is that you you think makes them so interesting to look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think part of it is the lighting. And... It's often said that the film noir lighting is is very dark and people talk about the chiaroscuro. uh, And that's definitely a part of it. I've also been interested in a paradoxical way in when film noir lighting is bright. uh, Because I think that's the way that the films make meaning. It isn't just that it's dark all the time. It's that they play the darkness off with the scenes of lightness. So one film that I think is quite interesting is um, The Asphalt Jungle, which both has some great, uh, great shadowy scenes where characters are toplit, so they've got these dark shadows over their eyes, really looking ahead to something like The Godfather. Uh, so you can get that really nice chiaroscuro look, uh, but they also play it off against other scenes where uh, uh, the end is played in absolute broad daylight. Uh, as the character is trying to get back. He's trying to get out of the city and back to the country. And he almost makes it, but then he dies. (laughs) Uh, uh, But I think it's so powerful that he doesn't die like 
in the shadowy streets. He like dies in the middle of the countryside in the bright in the bright sunlight. And I love how in a film noir the lighting will progress moment by moment. So one of the scenes that I've written about is uh, a scene in Double Indemnity where uh, Walter Neff is tempted to get involved with this murder plot uh, that's being plotted by uh, Phyllis Dietrichson, uh, played by Barbara Stanwyck. And he initially has rejected the idea, like, I'm, I'm just not going to get involved. Uh, but then she comes to his apartment and convinces him uh, that he should uh, help her commit this murder. Uh, in fact, that he should be the one to commit the murder. And the scene progresses so well that she hints at the idea of murder, but then she takes the idea back and says, that, that isn't what I meant at all. I'm not talking about murder. And then she says, but actually, I, you know, I really am thinking about murder. And then she says, no, no, you're misinterpreting me. That's not what I mean. So the scene has this back and forth progression. And the lighting echoes that progression, that whenever she brings the idea of murder forward, she'll turn away from the light source so that suddenly her, her face is in shadow. And then he'll shift his position where he is in the chair so that suddenly he's lit a little bit differently. And then when she goes away from the idea of murder, then she'll walk into a different room that is brightly lit as opposed to the room where she was just in, which was darkly lit. Uh, so it's just a brilliant piece of staging uh, that over the course of, I can't remember how long it is, but three or four minutes, they move from one room to the next to another room, and they're sitting close to a lamp and not close to a lamp, and it's all echoing the dramatic progression of the scene. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series, brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Patrick Keating from the Communication Department about cinematography and Hollywood history. We've been talking about black and white films, but I, there's also some color pictures, I think, that really do well in film noir. I think of something like Leave It to Heaven with Gene Tierney, mm -hmm. which is this technicolor film, but uh, at the same time, it follows all the uh, other aspects and um, mm -hmm. uh, beats of film noir, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Leave It to Heaven is is an interesting one. So, someone once said this to me about Leave It to Heaven, that... Jean Tierney is an interesting femme fatale because everything she does, she does for love. Uh, so she's actually very different than Phyllis Dietrichson, mm -hmm. uh, who just seems like this malevolent force in the movie. And Jean Tierney's character is this like force for destruction, but she's not, she's not malevolent the same way that Phyllis Dietrichson is. The lighting in that film also... Um, quite terrific. Uh, Leon Shamroy photographed it. And he was a bit of an innovator with Technicolor. A lot of times the Technicolor consultants uh, would say, well, we have to prove that you can tell a story with Technicolor. So 
we actually advise you to rein the color in, except for maybe a few key moments. And Leon Shamroy was one of the cinematographers who said, no, if I'm, if I'm going to do color, I'm going to give you some extravagant color. Push it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the scenes I like best in Lever to Heaven are some of the night scenes where he's using these orange gels on the lamps just to intensify the color palette of the film. And it's not very naturalistic at all, but it's, it's really expressive and intense. One of the things that I'm interested in about the studio system and about the push and pull of commerce versus artistry mm -hmm. uh, back during that time of the golden age of Hollywood as well is that to use a film that's not a film noir really, but like to one of the classics of all time, like Casablanca, mm -hmm. where it's going through the studio system. It's basically just one of many films they were churning out over mm -hmm. the over the over the course of a year right mm -hmm. and so michael curtis is there working with bergman and uh, bogart and it's just one of the pictures right yep. you know but it became this classic for so many reasons and so i'm always fascinated to see kind of the way that in the midst of having to churn out movies over and over and over again at such a volume that several of these directors and cinematographers were at the same time able to push push the bounds of artistry, like you said mm -hmm. just now, with to use the Lever to Heaven example, or uh, in so many of these film noir uh, uh, films, to uh, you know basically change the way we looked at uh, moving pictures at the time, mm -hmm. at the same time that they were just having to rattle these things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and. And there are lots of different films that'll push the boundaries in different ways. Uh, there's one um, school of thought that emphasizes how uh, you had more freedom if you were making a B film. And the reason is with a B film, you got a set budget and you had a set schedule. Uh, and as long as you could get your movie done in that budget and under schedule, the movie would be profitable, um, which meant it, it didn't matter, really. Uh, it, it didn't require that much oversight. So there are, there are some uh, B-films that are really extraordinary works of art uh, uh, that you can't quite imagine um, being made as A-films. Like Detour. Detour. Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah, where the things go in and out of focus and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Detour is sort of, sort of the classic example here. Most of the films I study actually are A-films. You know, and so something like Double Indemnity was was an A film. You know, it's 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 Billy Wilder. You got um, stars in it. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have stars, and there you do have you have more more time uh, to fine tune certain touches, and you also can take advantage of something the studio system gives you, which is really tremendous skill. You've got great equipment, uh, and you've got people who have mastered this equipment. So I'm thinking here of things like camera movement. There are just some remarkable shots that just seem like they were pulled off effortlessly. Uh, and it's just because these are people who've been doing this um, for 20 years uh, can execute these remarkable shots. Casablanca, there's a, a scene I've been looking at, which is the scene where Bogart's character gives the letters of transit to Victor Laszlo but then for a moment, we think that he's actually betrayed Victor and Ilza uh, because Claude Rain steps in and arrests them. But double twist, 
turns out that uh, Bogart pulls a, I think he pulls a gun or yes, he pulls a gun on uh, uh, Claude Rain. That's right. He's actually trying to help yeah. help them. One of the things that Curtiz uh, was known for doing was cutting on movement, which most filmmakers wouldn't do. Um, that when you cut, they want it to be, they want spectators to have like a moment just to orient themselves and then the camera can move. But in this scene, when Claude Rain steps out, cut to Ingrid Bergman, and immediately she steps from a single, she's the only person on screen, to a position directly between uh, Bogart, Rick, and Victor Laszlo. And it happens so fast that it actually is disorienting. Mm -hmm. But the disorienting, the disorientation is perfectly expressive because suddenly we've been hit by this twist. She's been hit by this twist. And it's wonderful that we have the images just constantly just reshaping before our eyes. And they're doing it in a way that's um, metaphorically works as well, that she, she's standing closer to Rick, and then she takes this position between Rick and Victor, somewhat closer to Victor. So it's telling us about how Rick's actions have affected her evaluation of, of both men. And that's a type of shot. When you watch it, you just say, this actually was, is a really hard shot. Uh, for the camera just to move a couple feet, but to keep pace with Ilsa, who's walking so rapidly. Mm -hmm. It takes expertise. And that's what the studio system gives you. It's like, I'm sure this was easy for the dolly grab. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it wouldn't be easy for me. It wouldn't be easy for my students. Um, but it would be easy for someone who's just been doing this for so long. So compare that studio system then, though, where there's a machine that is doing this all the time. And so they've got that expertise now to what we see today. What's the difference between Hollywood today and then that time? Mm -hmm. I have thought that uh, one of the governing ideas of the studio system was the idea that style should be relatively invisible. That many cinematographers, when you read interviews with them, will say a version of the following sentence. If you go see my movie and you walk out saying, oh, what a beautiful shot, then I haven't done my job. Uh, that my job is to make you forget that you're watching a movie. And, you know, I have dozens of examples of cinematographers saying this, and you can see screenwriter saying this, you know, if you remember that joke, uh, then I haven't done my job. You're supposed to be paying attention to the story. Editors will say it. If you, if you notice the editing, I haven't done my job. You're supposed to pay attention to the story. Is that some sort of humble brag type thing? Yeah, yeah. It's a humble brag thing. And, and people will still say it today, but I, I, I think that contemporary films are much less committed to the idea that style should be invisible. Style is much more aggressive and forceful. Um, these days. And I do think that the end of the studio system has something to do with it. If you're a cinematographer in the studio system, you're on a seven-year contract. But at the end of the studio system, you're a free agent. And so once you're done with one movie, you've got to uh, sign up for another movie. And I do think that gives you a little bit more pressure to make your work eye-catching because it's an advertisement uh, for yourself. 
so that you can get that that next job. Whereas in the studio system, uh, that was that was less necessary because you you were under that seven year contract and your work was being more closely monitored. That's actually a good lead into what we'll be talking about in our in our next episode of this particular conversation, where we'll be talking about this year's crop of Oscar nominees and and films. So before we leave today, mm-hmm. I want to look back one more time and ask you for, you know, movie lovers love, you know, top five lists, top 10 lists, of course. Mm-hmm. And we love to argue about them as well, but I'm not, so I'm not going to argue with you mm-hmm. here, but I would like to know kind of uh, if, if people were listening right now, if you wanted to give them five great examples of um, a great old film beautiful cinematography that you would want people to lo- uh, look at and, and, and really observe and, and appreciate what, what, what are your top five? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Top five cinematography. I would think, I would think you would want to watch a Joseph von Sternberg film. Everything I just said about how cinematographers wanted to be invisible does not apply <laughs> to Joseph von Sternberg films. Joseph von Sternberg reportedly said he wouldn't mind if his films were projected upside down. That's how much he didn't care about his stories, but he cared really about the dense visual patterning. So probably the best von Sternberg film would be The Scarlet Empress. Uh, So I would say watch The Scarlet Empress. Uh, What's another good one? I actually do think Double Indemnity is really a good model of, of Hollywood cinematography. I also like, I've actually studied a fair amount of Greta Garbo films. Mm-hmm. And I think her cinematographer, William Daniels, uh, is an excellent example of a filmmaker who struck a great balance. That uh, film, filmmakers wanted style to be expressive, uh, but they also still wanted it to be glamorous. And they still wanted it to do, uh, to do all that well, it's telling the story. And in my book, one that I've written about is the 1935 version of Anna Karenina. I can't say it's a great adaptation of Anna Karenina, uh, but it is a really well-photographed yeah. uh, adaptation. And it's, it's, I think, a good example of Hollywood at its most Hollywood. Sunrise. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Sunrise, I think, is an extraordinary film. And an emotional one, too, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because uh-huh. yeah, halfway through that movie, you're just in utter despair. And then they get you back. Uh, they, they're able to bring you back to a place of hopefulness. Uh, oh, let me mention another one, Sweet Smell of Success. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, photographed by James Wong Howe. Uh, one of the great Hollywood cinematographers. And he actually started out as an expert in glamour. But he wanted to push Hollywood style in a more realistic direction. And I think Sweet Smell of Success is one of his best. It's got a great screenplay by Ernest Lehman and Clifford Odets. And it's really edgy. And James Wong Howe did some of his edgiest photography. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Patrick Keating, thank you so much for this uh, conversation today. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the first Tuesday of each month. 
For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest topics for future consideration, email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu. Thank you.